Thank you, Ben. Good to see you all again. And if you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 3. We began this series last week based on Amos. Amos the man was a nobody, small town farmer, a town called Tekoa, just about half a day's journey from Jerusalem. So he's from Judah. And God sends him north to the tribes of Israel to preach to the king and the priests and the people of Israel. And Amos uses this image of the Lord as a roaring lion. That the Lord is like a lion, which kind of can be a scary picture. I don't know how many of you guys have been up close and personal with a lion. Just, you know, across the chasm from them there at the zoo is enough to make me tremble a little bit. Those are some big, powerful animals. And it kind of reminds me of the character of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know how many of you all are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, but when the Pevensey children first learned that this Aslan they keep hearing about is a lion, Susan comments that she would, she, she says, I should be rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And he answers, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. If you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, the character of Aslan is meant to represent Jesus in those stories. God in the Bible is often compared to a lion. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Lions are powerful. They aren't safe. But the Lion of Judah is good. And even though God's roar is one of judgment, it isn't out of malice. It's out of a desire to see His people return to Him. It is a roar to restore the fractured nations of Israel and Judah back into His chosen nation, His treasured possession. So here, in Amos chapter 3, he begins uh, the first of three sermons. There's a separate sermon in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Each of them begin with this phrase that says, Hear this word the Lord has spoken. Amos wants to be clear. This isn't just his opinion. This isn't just the, the mere words of a man. This is God's direct message to the people of Israel and Judah. You know, even, even God's roar of judgment is itself an act of mercy. We don't worship a God who leaves us to wonder what kind of a God He is or what He expects of us or how we can please Him. He is a God who speaks, who reveals Himself to us who longs for us to know Him. What a privilege we have in this book. That God has given us this revelation. But with this privilege comes quite a responsibility as well. A responsibility to listen, to obey, to respond to God's Word to us. So in this message in Amos 3, we discover four particular things God is calling us to. Four divine calls and the responsibility that we have to respond to each one of them. The first call we read is the call to salvation. Let's look at Amos 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Notice first that God is speaking against the whole family. Amos may be in Israel preaching to them, but as we saw last week, God is including the people of Judah in this message as well. He's talking to the whole family. 
And God begins by reminding both nations of their divine call as God's holy people. A call that they seem to have completely forgotten. Worse than that, it's a call they seem to have actively rejected. They've turned their backs on this calling. As Christians, we are also divinely called to be God's people. That's why I'm referring to this as the call to salvation. You think about the people of Israel. God saved them from slavery in Egypt, made them His people, and brought them into the promised land to be His nation of priests to the earth. We read that in our Old Testament reading. Both there and in Amos 3, Israel is reminded that God chose them by His grace. They didn't deserve it. And so the call to salvation is first and foremost a gracious call. It's a gracious call. God chose the children of Israel out of all the families on the earth. God chose them. They didn't choose Him. And right before they go into the promised land, God reminded them in Deuteronomy 7, it says, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God made clear that Israel did nothing to deserve being God's people. It wasn't because they were better than anyone else or more powerful. It's because of God's love and faithfulness. Jesus reminded His disciples of the same thing. In John 15, 16, He said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. doesn't get much more plain than that, does it? Paul reminds us, as believers, that we are also recipients of this grace of God. We are Christians because of His love and faithfulness, not our own. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a passage that many of you well know, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. When God calls His people to salvation, it is a gracious call. We don't deserve it. We can never earn it. The second thing about this call, though, is it's also a personal call. Israel and Judah belonged exclusively to God. They were His chosen people, a special kingdom of priests to represent Him to all the world. And how much more true is this for us as Christians today? Because we have received the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption that makes us sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We are reconciled with Him so that we can be given the ministry of reconciliation and be sent out as His ambassadors to the earth. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. And He chose us in Him to what? To be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. We are each personally and specifically called by God to salvation. You can't coast into heaven on your mama or your daddy's faith. You don't get into heaven because your name is on a church roll. You must personally trust 
in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and be adopted as a child of God. This is personal. It's a choice you must make. It's a call you must answer to. And third, this call to salvation is a dutiful call. Here in verse 2, the reason that God says He's going to punish them for their sins is because they have answered that call to be God's chosen special people. Because they belong to God, God will discipline them. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines those He loves and He punishes each one He accepts as His child. The call to salvation, you see, it comes with expectation. It comes with responsibilities. My daughter has expectations and responsibilities as a member of our family. And we have expectations and responsibilities as a member of God's family. Listen to what some of these responsibilities and expectations are for which God will hold us accountable. In John 15, 16, Jesus goes on. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that, what, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus has chosen us and appointed us to a responsibility, an expectation to bear fruit that will last. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here he's, he's hearkening back to our Old Testament reading. God's special possession. For what purpose? that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Again, the expectation that we're going to bring praise and glory to our Father in Heaven. Paul goes on in that great passage in Ephesians 2 about how we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. He goes on in verse 10 to say, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So when God calls us to salvation, it is a dutiful call because He is calling us, He is saving us to do good works. Have you personally answered God's gracious call to salvation? Have you answered that call yourself? Have you decided to live into this calling as a member of God's family, to embrace these responsibilities and expectations, are you dutifully living as a follower of Jesus Christ? Amos further explores this idea of duty and responsibility that we have as God's people. You see, the call to salvation always leads to and includes the call to service. The call to service. We see that in beginning in verse 3. Do two walk together? Unless they have agreed to do so, does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth when there's nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos shifts his focus here from God's calling of Israel to God's calling of him, his own calling as a prophet. And, and I can imagine this Israelite audience listening to this backwoods shepherd from Judah thinking, who is this rustic farmer? Where does he come off claiming to speak for God. Why should we listen to anything he has to say? 
We'll see in chapter 7 that the Israelite king Jeroboam and, and his royal priests felt that way, and they tell him to go back to Judah and preach to them. We're done listening to you. And here in chapter 3, Amos is either anticipating that response or maybe he's already started to hear those kinds of grumbles. Either way, Amos asks some rhetorical questions. He, he points to some illustrations that kind of deal with effects and their causes, right? Two people walk together because they've agreed to meet together and do so. You know, a, a lion roars because he has found his prey. The trap is sprung because the bird has landed in it. People are afraid because the alarm has been sounded. And Amos uses these obvious facts from everyday life to make the point that if an untrained farmer is preaching God's Word, it must be because God has called him to do so. Just as God called and chose Israel even though they weren't worthy and they weren't mighty and they weren't numerous, so God chose and called Amos to preach even though he wasn't worthy and he wasn't trained or skilled in this. Just as Israel wasn't cho didn't choose God but was chosen by God, Amos didn't choose to be a prophet. He was chosen by God to be a prophet. In fact, in Amos chapter 7, he answers the royal priest Amaziah. He says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Again, we serve a God who longs to be known. As verse 7 here in, in Amos 3 tells us, God chooses to reveal His plans to His people through His chosen servants, the prophets. God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to let anybody know what He's going to do, but He chooses to. And God calls and uses all kinds of people. And guess what? None of them are worthy. None of us are worthy of that call. We see in the Bible and in throughout history, God relishes in choosing nobodies and sometimes famous people. He loves to use those who are weak and those who are strong, those who are uneducated and those who are well-trained. Think about Moses. He was a prince of Egypt. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He had the best education and training in the whole world at that time. But then King David was the runt of his family and a shepherd boy out tending sheep. Isaiah and Jeremiah were both trained, well-educated, royal priests in the temple in Jerusalem. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John were uneducated fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. What about you? What is God calling you to do? How does He want you to serve Him and His kingdom? Maybe you think, David, I'm just not qualified. I'm nobody special. I'm not educated enough. I'm not popular enough. I don't know enough people. I'm not knowledgeable at the Bible as, as other people are. Well, guess what? You're in good company. I encourage you to humbly consider that those may be the very reasons that God is calling you. He doesn't call those who are able. He calls those who make themselves available. He will enable you if you step out in faith. You know, but most of us in this room and most of y'all that are listening or watching online, you've got some kind of skill. Most of you have some level of education or training. Perhaps God is calling you to serve into that area. Perhaps it is that education that you have, those skills that you've developed, that training you've invested in. Maybe those are the reasons God is calling you to serve. The point is, is if you're a Christian, 
God has called you to a place of service. Will you respond to that call? Even in his illustrations here, Amos proclaims what God is about to do. God is roaring his impending judgment to his people. God is about to spring the trap on Israel and Judah as Assyria and Babylon are waiting in the wings to come and to be the hand of God's judgment on his wayward people. And unless they repent, Amos is sounding the alarm, judgment is going to come. And he sounds that alarm. God has sent him to serve and proclaim this message in the hope that the people will turn and repent. And that brings us to this next divine call, the call to confession. Let's pick it up in verses 9 and 10. Proclaim to the fortress of Ashdod and to the fortress of Egypt, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. Now, Old Testament prophets often like to use this motif of a courtroom. And God would call heaven and earth as a witness. Or God would call pagan nations as a witness against His people, Israel and Judah. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way in which God is saying that the rebellion of His people is so egregious, even pagan nations look on in shock. Even the lost world looks and shakes their head at His people. What a tragedy when the lost world catches and has to hold to account Christians for their sins. Remember how Abraham was called out twice by pagan kings for lying about his relationship with his wife. Or the ways in which Samson was put to shame by the Philistines. Or how the prophet Nathan confronted David over his sins regarding Bathsheba. And Nathan even said to him, By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. We could cite many modern-day examples of pastors and Christian musicians or Christian athletes or celebrities, even politicians who profess Christ, who have brought shame on themselves, their churches, and the cause of Christ because of their sin. And what was Israel's grievous sin for which God is bringing these pagan nations to bear witness against them? Well, we looked at most of them last week. The sin of treating people inhumanely. The sin of injustice of idolatry and immorality. But here in Amos 3, especially here in verses 9 and 10, Amos mentions unrest. That word can also be translated as chaos. There's chaos in the streets. People are being oppressed. See, God's people forgot how to do right. They forgot what was right. And instead, they're hoarding all of their unjust and ill-gotten gains for themselves. Back in chapter 2, God accused Israel of unjustly taking the poor to court, literally suing the shirt off of their backs. While the law of Moses stipulates in Exodus 22, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. I want to read that again. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. 
because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God cares for the poor. He cares for the down and out, and He expects us to care for them as well. But when we forget to do what is right, when we turn a blind eye to those who are in need, when we use dishonest and unjust and unethical means to gain wealth, and then we hoard it for ourselves, God says it leads to chaos and unrest and oppression. And if you're like me, you're thinking of the unrest and the chaos in our own country. Now, there is no excusing the riotous behavior, the vandalism, the looting, the violence. There's no excusing any of that. But we must acknowledge that if God's people, if the church had been being the people of God all of this time in this country, if we hadn't abdicated our responsibility to lovingly proclaim the truth in a dark world, if we hadn't retreated into our little Christian bubbles and pulled back, from the world around us, if we hadn't have become so inwardly focused as churches that we weren't meeting the needs in our community, if we had been making disciples and baptizing people the way we should, I don't think we'd be here today as a country. When the light retreats from the darkness, is it any wonder the darkness grows bolder? And that's why we are where we are today. I don't lay the blame at lost people. Lost people are going to act like lost people. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. I lay the blame squarely at our feet, the church. And we're behind the ball. We are way behind. And we've got to pick it up and run with it and do better. Amen? Warren Wiersbe wrote, No wonder there was unrest in the land for the possession of wealth never satisfied the hunger of the heart. Church, we have to stop pursuing the world's goals and agendas. We've got to start being salt and light and leading the way for our country. We must confess how affluence and comfort and entertainment and luxuries has hardened our hearts toward those in need. We must confess that we have failed to do what is right and that we have become so inwardly focused we have failed our communities. We have failed to hold out the word of life to those who are dying in the dark. Throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that the only reason He blesses us isn't so we can spend it on our earthly pleasures. The only reason God blesses us is so we in turn can be a blessing to others. Instead, we tend to be like the man in the parable that Jesus told. Remember? God had blessed him with abundant crops. And what did he do? He built bigger barns. And bigger barns. And he said, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to eat this up. I'm going to feast on it. I'm going to throw parties for me and my friends because tomorrow I may die. And God said, you fool. Tonight your life is required of you. And what good is any of this you've hoarded for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God, Jesus said. James talks about this in James chapter 1. He explains how we can be rich toward God. He says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world? Are you willing to confess your sins before a holy God who stands ready to forgive you? He longs to forgive you. Will you confess your sins of the tongue and the Twitter and the texting? Will you confess that you failed to look out for those in distress? Will you confess that you've allowed yourself to be polluted by the world's ways and values and priorities? If we don't confess those things, then, as God said in Isaiah 10, 1 through 3, He will hold us to account. He says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Confession of misplaced priorities, of worldly values and practices. Church, we're different from the world. We're the light in the darkness. We're the salt of the earth. If we lose our saltiness, if we lose our distinctiveness as the people of God, Jesus says, what use are we? We're of no use to be trampled under the foot of men. And I think one of the reasons why the faith of Jesus Christ, the church... The gospel, the word of God, one of the reasons it's being trampled on in this country is because we have lost our saltiness. And the world looks at us and says, what good are you? You're no different than we are. But y'all, confession is just the first step. There's the call to confession, but it must be followed up. Just as the call to salvation leads to the call to service, the call to confession leads to the call to repentance. Let's finish this chapter beginning in verse 11. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will put down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this. And testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished. Here Amos warns of the coming judgment. Unless God's people confess and repent, of their sinful ways. And unfortunately, we know in history, they do not. And in 722 B.C., Assyria comes in with such force, it effectively wipes Israel off the map, destroying the northern tribes. And the small remnant that remains is what in Jesus' day becomes the Samaritan people. Assyria plunders what Israel plundered. They take from Israel what Israel took from the poor. Israel reaps what they sowed. But in God's mercy, he does leave behind a remnant. As if a leg bone or an ear is all that's left when the lion devours a lamb. There is a remnant of people who are left behind. This isn't a pretty picture. And it's not meant to be. The lion is roaring. He's about to destroy his prey. Assyria is coming. This is God's judgment for His people's wickedness. 
the luxuries of their ivory-adorned bed and furnishings and mansions, their summer homes and their winter homes, their illegal temple in Bethel where they have rejected the Old Testament law and the covenant worship of the Lord for this pseudo-religious devotion to the adornments of faith with no substance there, Amos says, none of that's going to save you. None of that's going to make any difference. Today, people measure themselves by the wealth that they store up. We measure ourselves by our beach houses and our mountain houses and our cars and our furniture and our technologies and our investment portfolios. Nations think they're successful and secure because of their GDP or their weapons or their armies. We create man-made philosophies and politics and religions to console ourselves and justify our actions. But God sees. God hears. God speaks and roars. Will we listen? Will we respond? Listen, God isn't interested in you placating Him through religious ritual, through going through the motions, through half-hearted amens to a sermon. God doesn't care about that. Listen to what he said through the prophet Joel. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Peter echoed this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This morning, will you respond and answer God's call? Maybe this morning, He's calling you to salvation. You realize today that you've never confessed and repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus and what He did on the cross. Not what you do, not what a preacher does, not what a church does, but what Jesus has done for you. Have you really put your trust in His finished work on the cross to forgive you of your sins and to save you? Have you asked Him to come into your life, to live within you by His Spirit and to make you into the man or the woman that you know He wants you to be? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you answered that call to salvation? Have you answered the call to service? Maybe that's the call God would have you to answer this morning. I'll never forget the day that I knew that God was calling me into full-time Christian ministry. And I fought it. And I went against it. And I was a kid. But I knew this wasn't anything I wanted to do. I knew this was going to be hard and difficult. And I was right. (laughs) But I'm so glad I did. Being in the center of God's will is not a safe place. It's not an easy place. It's not always a fun place, but it's the best place to be. What is God calling you to do? And it may not be full-time Christian ministry. It may. It may be to the mission field. Maybe God is calling you to work in the nursery. Maybe God is calling you to be a greeter or an usher. Maybe God is calling you to sing in the choir once we get the choir back going. Maybe God is calling you to help up there with the sound booth. Maybe God is calling you to build a relationship with that coworker or that neighbor for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them and making disciples of them. What is God calling you to do today? Will you respond? Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this church and say, this is where I want to serve and worship. 
Will you answer his call? Maybe God is calling you to confess of your callousness and your spiritual apathy, your worldly priorities and attitudes. Maybe God is calling you to rend your heart this morning and to ask God in his grace and mercy to forgive you and to remake you more and more into the image of Christ. Listen, he is a gracious